Welcome to Technicolor Jesus, a podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. In today's episode, we are digging into the classic Hollywood vault. We are dusting off our fedoras and putting on our bifocals and staring into the abyss until it starts to stare back. Forget it, folks. It's Chinatown. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam Hurlson, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers and teachers. Last time we were together, Adam decided we had to go watch Chinatown, so that's what we've done. And in our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Adam to defend his pick. Why does this movie, Chinatown, matter for the work of the church? And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Chinatown for the lectionary week ahead, which will be March 6th, the fourth Sunday in Lent. Finally, we offer up some postludes, just theological thoughts each of us, uh, from each of us on something else we've been watching or following. So Adam, let's get to it. Chinatown, Roman Polanski's 1974 masterpiece. A young, brilliant Jack Nicholson shows up as Jake Giddis, a Los Angeles cop-turned-private eye who gets sucked into a murder plot set against the background of the battles over water rights that consumed L.A. in the early days of the 20th century, not to mention up against the background of this one messed-up, incestuous, and dangerously broken family. So this movie has got political theater, conspiracy, violent sex, and not to mention a fairly desperate and nihilistic tone. It's got everything, so much of it, that even as I recognize its brilliance, I can't get to the end without my head spinning. I have seen this movie many, many times. When I was in high school and my friend Bailey and I were just starting to educate ourselves on the canon, Chinatown was one of the first things we watched. In college, when I was taking classes on the history of American film, Chinatown was one of the first stops. When I was in Grad school studying film, of course, Chinatown was one of the first stops. This is a seismic movie, right? And so much has been said about it, and so much has been written about it. And so my question to you is, what are we doing here today? What do we have to say now? Why this movie now? Why this movie for the church? Adam, justify my faith. So I chose this movie because I think it cuts to the heart of what it means to live in the United States in a post-industrial age. And I think it cuts to the heart of what it means to live in the United States in an information age as well. Of the films that came out during that golden age of the American auteur cinema of the 70s, um, it's my favorite. It is at once a genre picture, hearkening back to the noir films of the 40s and 50s, while oddly never fully buying into the themes of the genre. The film is shot mostly during the day, very little shadows exist until the final scene in Chinatown. The femme fatale is a traumatized survivor of sexual assault. The nosy detective finds the truth but can't actually change anything. All good intentions are rendered ineffective, and in the end, we're left with a closing line that is perhaps the most cutting and sharp in all of cinema. 
What have we to say in the face of Flint, Michigan, when children are poisoned and no one is held accountable? What do we say when bankers receive severance packages while people were evicted from their homes? What do we say when cops shoot the innocent and walk away confident in their safety? All of these questions are noted and literally played out within the movie Chinatown. And in that way, I think it is especially prescient for our particular age. Jake tries to do good. And in that way, he is a model of all of us who are trying to work for good in this world. He tries to find truth. And yet, none of his virtue goes rewarded. And the movie concludes, like the teacher in Ecclesiastes, that it's all vapor. It's all just vanity. So don't even try to figure it out. What I love about this movie is that it understands that feeling. It understands how hard you work to get to know the truth and what happens when that truth won't set you free. So I have had the experience of this movie regularly of following it and tracking it and trying to piece together what's happening. And inevitably I get right close to the end and realize that I'm not sure anymore where things are, that it, um, the process of even trying to piece it together doesn't always entirely does, doesn't work for me. And, and I think part of that is the, baggage of the genre that it inherits right i mean this is a movie that wants to sit in the shadow as you will of like big sleep and maltese falcon and these kind of classic noirs that were projects meant to kind of destabilize even the possibility of threading the narrative of a film and big sleep does not make a lick of sense and i won't believe anyone who tells me otherwise yeah, neither does like the, the, the Fritz Lang and, and M and and the rest of that genre, especially as it gets most post-war in the Second World War. I think it's important to also recognize that this is coming just on the heels of the Vietnam War as well. And I think Polanski is trying to make a point that, number one, uh, the power that resides in the hands of a select few is nearly unstoppable. And that we can, uh, we can protest Robert McNamara, but that never stopped Robert McNamara. And so I feel like you're supposed to leave this film feeling a sense of powerlessness. Well, it works. <laughs> I mean, I always leave this film with a sense of powerlessness. Uh, it actually wasn't the, the ending was it was not it was not Robert Towns' original ending. I mean, he wanted. Cross to get shot, and he wanted the and you wanted uh, um the lady Mulray to get away, and then and she and Jake to run off together, and uh, it was Polanski who came in and said, "No, we've got to flip this around. It's got to be it's it's got to be the worst possible outcome." And there's there's something symbolic about even trying to interpret it, and and her to me the there's the shot of her, um, the way she's shot at the end with what is the bullet hole that comes through the eye socket, right? The, right. A, movie, a movie that begins with 20 minutes of him looking at things and surveilling people and being the private eye at the very end gets that even that organ ripped out of it. There's not even... Uh, I mean, you can interpret it as, as kind of powerlessness, but I, I even want to push it towards 
meaninglessness itself that it's it it doesn't even want interpretation by the time we're done with it right right i mean but that's that's central to the i think the the themes of the movie which is uh, everything is seen in double um no one quite uh, occupies a single role um so evelyn is mother and sister um there is something about these bifocals that sit at the center as a plot point that are both um, two things at once. Uh, there, there is the the pictures that people see, and then there are the realities of the world. I, I think this this movie is always trying to play with this idea of uh, which identity uh, you're you're going to assume. And I think it's also questioning, like, is it honest? Is anyone more honest than the other? And I'm not sure that it, um, in the end, it wants to make any one statement about what it means to be honest, other than even honesty uh, won't set you free. It won't get you anywhere. And that, that type of meaninglessness, I think, is only born from someone like Polanski, who who was born in um, in a Soviet state, um, loses a wife and child uh, to what seems to be a meaningless and um, insane crime of the Manson family. And he comes and says, while we hide behind so much of... Um, of the the movie industry and uh, the stories and entertainment, the life we lead is not ours. It's subject to so much um, uh, meaninglessness. It's, it's bleak, man. It's so bleak. It is. Bleak. I love that though, <laughs> it, but it's it's necessary, right? Like it seems to want to look into the abyss, right? And you said that at the top, like it looks into the the abyss and the abyss looks back. And in that way, I think it stands um, as one of the more uh, exceptional existential movies of the 20th century. Yeah. And I don't think anyone, no one here is debating its place in the canon. I mean, a, cause we don't get to decide that. I don't think so. <laughs> anyway, I think it's pretty well cemented. I think the library of Congress already has a few copies framed behind the yeah, counter. The, the AFI top 100. Yeah, so way to pick an obscure one is what I'm telling. I know. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it, but more than that, like, I what I what I'm I'm astounded by the themes of water, the role of water in California, s- still, the the role of water in Flint, Michigan. All of these things I think are are really important for people in ministry as they think about how resources are controlled by an oligarchy. Um, that they really can't stop. And to come to that powerlessness, I think is in some ways part of the um, the life of faith, right? At some point, isn't there a moment where you give up? I mean, I think there's a point where you give up to a higher power, but I am not convinced that that power is meant to be the kind of oligarchical human power that is referenced in the film. Right, right. No, I don't mean that. I mean, like, surrender any idea that we can do this on our own. Sure. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm certainly with you there. I, I, I think the film does, does give us something bleaker than what we are, than the, the image of our discipleship that's offered to us by scripture and tradition. I mean, I, I do think that the stories, the, the, the gospel and Acts narratives and the stories of the early church presented in the New Testament do have a sense of um, human agency in them that is sustained and made available by the presence of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the Pentecost narrative that seems to be pushed back against in this film. Um, you know, the these regular people in the Acts narratives become, um, are imbued with divine power. And the, the promise is of that available to the the long history of the church. And I, right. you know, I, I'm not sure that even though I don't necessarily always feel that power happening in the walls of our church every week, it's, um, I, I certainly wish that I did, but it, um, I'm not sure that it therefore gets us to a place where we're meant to surrender. Yeah. I know. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm trying to balance this, uh, the idea of surrender as a person of power uh, with recognizing what it means to give up. And, and I'm, I'm reminded that like, there are times that giving up is this faithful act. And in giving up, we, um, we surrender our ability to change things, but never surrender the faith that God can change things. And in that way, I think it puts the relationship of humans and, and the divine in right relationship. I think it balances it so that we don't think that we're, uh, that we're more, uh, uh, that we're more divine than we actually are. I don't know. I'm, I I think that this is a, a sort of Lenten movie in that way, right? Mm. Which is like, from dust you came to dust you shall return. You, uh, and in between, all of your good intentions might be for ill and might be for not. Like, how do we how do we live into that, still recognizing that our reaction to the grace of God merits trying right and i think i think trying is where i come to i mean i it's really good radio i'm sitting here nodding along with you which works really well uh, for the listeners at home <laughs> uh but i uh, i i think trying is where we might um, we might come to some common ground i mean it seems to me like the you know what, what is what is jake mutter at the end right he mutters he, he you know They've asked him earlier, what did you do in Chinatown when he was a beat cop? And he said, as little as possible. And then at the very end of the film, after Evelyn's been shot, you can hear him mutter under his breath, as little as possible. Like, what was I? Um, why did I even bother trying to go through with this virtuous plan that would get us out, you know, uh, if, if I had just kept my head down? And, and I'm not at all convinced that... Um, while certainly surrendered to God and surrendered to God's power is part of um, is part of 
our call, I'm not at all convinced that that implies keeping our heads down. I think, it, from, from my perspective, it feels like churches, and myself very much included, uh, suffer from too much of uh, the disease of cowardice and the willingness to stay in places of safety and in places of resignation and in places of inactivity. And I, I wonder what it looks like to believe rather that we actually do have the agency mm. uh, either as people of faith who have the power of God with us or, you know, particularly in a fairly white and privileged denomination, people of this earth who are not so far removed from those oligarchical places as we might like to believe that we actually do have agency to go into Flint or to think about what climate change means for Southern California or these kind of places of tension that you name. Right. And, and I think what I'm trying to get at is this, is this very complex relationship between intent and consequence. And in much of the church, I see intent as the primary paradigm by which we assess our sort of moral virtue. And I think what Chinatown is trying to do is also say, no, consequence also matters here, too. Like, for all of your good intentions, you are liable to screw everything up. Now, what's more interesting to me as a question of ministry is, given that reality, given that because we don't have the ability to see all of the consequences of our actions, and given the reality that we might actually screw things up, can we still act? Can we still fail? And when we fail, can we ask God for the mercy, recognizing how finite we are and how our understandings of the world are um, so rudimentary and then try and act again amid the grace of God? So would... Would Jake emerge from the movie as a more moral character had he stayed at home when Evelyn told him <laughs> to stay at home? Jake probably wouldn't have, but Evelyn would probably still be alive. And I actually don't know how to do that moral calculus. Mm. Well, I don't think it's up to either one of us. So that's a good thing. Right, and I think that that's, I think that's the, what the meaninglessness of, of this movie leaves me with. It's ultimately not just that all is nothing, but more that this world is far beyond my capacity to understand it. It exists in a way that is complex and seedy and depraved in ways that I can barely imagine. Um, and if I can admit that, then in some ways, the fact that there is the grace of God playing in, coming and breaking into this world becomes a deep source of hope for me. And so as a Christian, this movie ultimately leaves me to hope, um, though I'm not sure that that's what Polanski originally intended. Well, I'm certainly glad it has that effect on you, and perhaps that will um, 
keep our listeners from feeling like they need to send you flowers and chocolate. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was a little worried there for I a few know. minutes. I know. I know. I just, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes we need to be faced with the things we cannot change, right? Like, Absolutely. It, I, I, you know, kind of wish that we had Ecclesiastes queued up for the lectionary here. I right, feel like that would right. be a, a, a pretty apt connection. Right, right, right. All right, Matt. Well, let's move on to preaching. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir. We're going to look at lectionary passages for year C for the fourth Sunday in Lent, March 6th. What I want to know from you, Matt, is preacher to preacher, Sunday's coming. How is Chinatown going to show up in your sermon? So we can't talk about all the lectionary passages. We just don't have that kind of time. And what we're trying to do is just make each of us make some connection between the movie and one of the texts that's on offer. And for me, the text that's on offer and the theme that jumps out is stuff that Adam's already kind of alluded to is this theme of water that shows up in Chinatown. Uh, in the movie, of course, the, the bad guys are using the lack of water in Los Angeles to their advantage. We're reminded at the very beginning of the movie that Los Angeles is a desert community. And the scarcity of water there offers these the bad guys. Uh, there's a great opportunity they're going to build new dams, they're going to bring water to the city, and even though actually it's going to go out to the country where they've bought up all this cheap land, and they're going to make a killing selling it back to people once it's irrigated. So scarcity of natural resources doesn't fully explain the depravity in the film. I mean, we still have a lot of basic human nature that shows up there too, but it certainly helps. And then we have this text from Joshua for the lectionary, which is chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. The Israelites have just come into the promised land full of milk and honey, or at least the alleged milk and honey, but they are still, until chapter 5, eating manna. This is manna that they got in the wilderness, which is, of course, what you eat when you're in the desert and you don't have anything else. And then at the very beginning of this reading, the Israelites complete their obligation to God, which is that they finish circumcising all of the people who were with them, some who have been circumcised in the wilderness and some who haven't. And so only after they finish this faithful act, then God says, I have rolled away from you the disgrace of Egypt, and then they can stop eating the manna. And it says at the end of the readings for this coming Sunday that they ate the crops of the land that same year, which is to say that they move from this place where they are eating, the, eating from a place of scarcity to eating from a place of abundance and self-sufficiency. The land is self-sufficient. And I think what we end up with is a really interesting comparison and contrast between the text and between the, the movie. And so in this biblical text, we have a vision of natural abundance, but it's really contingent on this act of human faithfulness. The people are already in this presumably abundant land, but they don't get to experience it until they complete the, what is morally required of them by God, which is the act of circumcision. In Chinatown, we, we, don't have a clear vision of abundance. We have this desert community, and in the absence of that abundance, what you get, of course, is death and destruction and a real kind of moral bankruptcy. As Adam texted to me last night, the city is parched, right? Not just physically, but spiritually and morally. But then I want to say also, in the film, there is water and they're wasting it, right? I mean, Los Angeles is a desert community, but the film has water in it. And one of the egregious acts that the 
bad guys in the movie are doing is that they're dumping water to create artificial scarcity to further drive their own profits. And so I, I feel like you end up with this interesting connection where you could say, look, in the, um, in the biblical text, the land is given to the people, the resources become theirs in a way, I mean, from God, but it's, it's understanding that the, the, the resources are then shared among the people. In Chinatown, you have land given to the few and the resources come under their control. And I, I, th I think you could make a connection there to say that scarcity in both of these places is a real human moral condition. And abundance is the natural state that we inherit, and scarcity is what happens when our sinfulness overwhelms that and misallocates it and lets our own thirsts for power get in the way of our basic needs. And I think you can make very easy connections between that and the situation in Flint or that and the situation in, with climate change generally. And I think those connections kind of write themselves and what might make a, a kind of interesting way of illustrating and opening up that kind of connection between natural abundance and our own moral authority and acts of faithfulness. Right. So, I mean, the movie is, is so centrally about the lack of resources, like the lack of water, but also the lack of information, the lack of sort of moral or virtuous resources. Um, so how do we let people just profit from the most elemental needs of human life? I, I, I find it interesting that in the Joshua text, they eat that year. It's not that they planted that year. It's that the the land already had food in it. You know, yeah. it was already growing that um, it wasn't their work. Um, they didn't own it. They received it. They didn't make it. You know, it's um, this idea that you've made it has become that you make something has become a political act. And this, this text seems to be saying in some ways, like it was given to you. And that it was given to you doesn't give you license to now own it, but to share it, right? Which I think is central to this idea of these oligarchs who are trying to control the most elemental thing in the lives of a people, especially those in, in a desert. Absolutely. And I, and I would argue that if you wanted to make a connection across texts, I mean, one of the other texts offered for this lectionary Sunday is the Luke story of the prodigal son. And I, and I, um, I just want to offer up before I quit talking that there is a vision of abundance of natural abundance in that story, which is the vision of the fatted calf at the very end offered right. to the brother who comes home and that there may be a way of, of tying to tying that through the gospel into this, this larger Joshua picture. So that's what I've got for this lectionary Sunday, Adam. Uh, tell me, how are you going to preach to the choir? Uh, so I, I think Chinatown most immediately finds a conversation partner in the parable of the prodigal son, or as it's also known, the you know the parable of the gracious father. Uh, in many ways, Chinatown is this movie about what it means to be honest. Uh, the one noble and honest character in the movie dies within the first fifteen minutes. Uh, and these questions of honesty find their pointedness when Noah Cross is in the scene. And he's he's the villain. And he's played wonderfully by John Huston, uh, late in John Huston's life after a renowned career as a, a director and screenwriter. 
and he uh, and he's asking Jake if the investigating officer of the murder is an honest man and Jake replies as far as it goes of course he has to swim in the same water we all do and yet of all the characters cross who while a despicable villain and a rapist and a murderer seems not to swim in the same water that everybody else does and i think that's the point he among everybody else has made peace with his own villainy in the other scene he's in he's only in two scenes three scenes actually in the movie he tells jake most people never need to face up to the fact that at the right time and in the right place they are capable of anything of anything what I find is the connection between Chinatown and Cross and this parable of the prodigal son are questions about honest self-reflection. Self-reflection are, and the lack thereof are prevalent in this parable of these two brothers and their gracious father. And what I love about this parable is why, and why I think it's such an interesting antidote to Chinatown is that it puts very, very little stock in self-assessment. The son, who knows he is royally, royally screwed up, you know, rehearses this apology to himself on the road home. And he knows that he's lost it all. And he knows that he's a wretch and depraved. And he knows that he has to come home with the right amount of contrition. And so he has this very real and honest self-perception. And as he gets home, he doesn't even get to say the thing he's rehearsed. And it seems that his own perception doesn't actually matter to the father. Moreover, on the other side, the older brother is totally deluded and he's lying to himself. And that seems not to matter to the father either. This honest self-assessment is neither a good indicator of your virtue nor a proper indicator of the way that God understands you. And I find that totally liberating. Um, and I find that especially liberating as uh, when it relates to infant baptism. So go with me here for a second. <laughs> you didn't think we were going to go this way. Um, it just says infant baptism in our script, and then there's nothing else. And I'm, I'm, I'm on tender hooks, man. You, you take it and go. So, so, so many fights have been over uh, in the church have come over whether or not to, to baptize infants, right? Um, in both of the traditions that we're ordained in, we baptize infants. Um, and one of the reasons that I think it's appropriate to baptize infants is not is is actually because they don't have a self-assessment yet. It is an opportunity to rehearse this amazing and wonderful fact that God loves you and has shown grace to you before you've ever formed some vision of yourself, before you've ever become a villain or a hero, before you've ever be recognized that you're a liar or a cheat, um, God was offering grace even before that. And in that way, I think infant baptism, when combined with believer's baptism, provides this beautiful picture of what it means for God to love you before you even know it, 
and what it means for you to realize who you are in the face of God and then to take on that um, that new perspective that God provides for you in the waters of baptism. And so, you know, the 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 parable of the prodigal son is that moment of um, where the self-perception of, of each of the sons has to take a backseat to the perception of the father, which is you are the beloved of God. Um, and I think that Chinatown is, is a, I think that the parable of the prodigal son is an antidote to this idea that you are only your perception. I feel like I've been on a ride. <laughs> but, but but I love it, and I and I I know I I wonder. So one of the ways that I've always thought about infant baptism is not only I I I I love the theology that you're putting forward here. I wonder how the role of the community figures into that. I mean, because part of what I love about our Presbyterian service of baptism is that it's not just instead of the vows that an infant can't yet make for him or herself. It's the vows that are taken by the community around him or her. Um, and so we understand that we don't, for me, at least we don't believe or doubt in God alone, but we believe or doubt in God as part of a community that struggles with its faith and comes to its faith together. And I wonder if there's, uh, if there's something in the, the belief of the father in the story here right. that that helps tie and, and and speak in ways that the the sons can't honestly speak for themselves. Right, and there's no one in the community uh, in Chinatown, you know, who 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 hasn't been a, like in the middle of Chinatown. Right, they're right. all they're all caught in Chinatown, so they can't right. actually witness to anything other than what it's like to be. A, a uh, a citizen of that of that place well there is so much more we could say and i don't know maybe we've done just as little as possible adam but maybe we have to be content with that and move on <laughs> while we can chinatown is a classic folks if you haven't seen it go fix that it comes and goes from netflix right now you can rent it on itunes amazon youtube now it's time for our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. So, Adam, what's your postlude for the week? So, I, I love Los Angeles. Los Angeles is the setting of Chinatown. It is also um, my home, and Southern California in particular is uh, an important and holy place for me. I think within the scope of american religious history we find these places that pop up as holy sites you can think about the burned over district in uh northern new york i think you can think about different parts of the south um los angeles is a unique place of american religious history um First, as a place of um, of Catholic colonialization, we see missions that dot the landscape from uh, across California. But not long after that, you see that Los Angeles becomes a a site for seekers of all different sorts. Um, in 1906, you see the Azusa Street revival that happens in uh, Azusa and the sort of 
broken down part of Los Angeles that starts a movement that becomes a worldwide movement. Not long after that, you see the arrival of Jesus Freaks that churns into the Vineyard Movement and the Calvary Chapel Movement, where um, which have both been drivers of um, of modern and contemporary praise music and its uh, its place within the church. And so, I recommend Los Angeles as one of those sort of thin places where people experience God in very um, real ways. And uh, I also think it's remarkable that it's also the place where Hollywood lands as a place that wants to spend stories uh, that help us better understand ourselves. And so it all makes sense to me as a citizen of Southern California and a lover of this city um, that it's... uh, that its religious heritage is a contested one, but also just a remarkable one. So I commend Los Angeles to you as a place to begin thinking about what does it mean for a place to have a religious history to it? All right, Matt, what about you? So since this is a very special Los Angeles-themed episode of Technicolor Jesus, I I thought I would continue in the same... frame but i am a child of the east coast born and raised and what i have is um a story of being june 2000 uh excuse me june 1994 and i and a friend of mine and i have gone to the uh, multiplex in suburban new jersey to go see the new keanu reeves movie speed which we have managed to sneak into despite being underage and uh, coming home from seeing Speed on opening night and turning on the television and having spent two hours watching Keanu in a bus go down the 405 at no less than 50 miles an hour, turning on the television and seeing OJ in a white, Ford, in a white Bronco uh, going down the 405 with this phalanx of police cars chasing after him, which set off right the, the two-year-long reality show circus of the OJ Simpson trial. So now I am watching uh, on FX Tuesday nights at 10 o'clock, the People versus O.J. Simpson, which is this 10-part reality dramatization of the O.J. Simpson arrest and trial. Uh, it's a kind of interesting historical recreation of the biggest media event of my youth. It also casts these weird 90s icons in it. So you have... Travolta start showing up. You have David Schwimmer as Robert Kardashian. This is this very strange overlap of people I associate with that time playing other people I associate with that time, never having talk, thought about either of them in the 20 years since. I, I'm tempted to call the People versus O.J. Simpson a reality TV event, but it's not really. I mean, it's it's mythologized, right? The original trial was a reality TV event. There were cable channels invented for the purpose of covering that trial. But it feels like now the, the story is becoming a kind of cultural myth. I mean, it feels like what's happening is that this television show is participating in a process by which the history of the O.J. Simpson trial becomes the myth of the O.J. Simpson trial, which is not to dehistoricize it, but to say, what, is it, what does it mean that it now becomes cultural myth? And for me, it, it means that 
we're retelling it because it has new weight in a new cultural context for 2015. And so part of what the show does is explicitly tie the trial to the beating of Rodney King. It explicitly ties the trial to Los Angeles's history of police violence, which was certainly an issue in the trial originally, but perhaps not as surfaced as it is, certainly not for white America then as now. But of course, now in the wake of Ferguson and in the wake of the conversations we're having about police brutality, that it seems newly consequential. And it seems to me that what's then happening on the show is that it's becoming a myth, not because it's ahistorical, but because it's true for a new generation and true in a new kind of way. And I, I wonder if this isn't kind of part of how we understand the constant retelling of biblical stories. I mean, I think about the for example, the family narratives in Genesis, the reconciliations between brothers, the dramas with Jacob and Leah and Rebecca, and I'm thinking about what what's what's important to us in those stories. I mean, part of it is um, that they were important to a people that we claim heritage with. Part of it is that they occasionally reference the character and work of God. Part of it is, I think that they're almost self-justified in a sense that not because they are real history, but because the people speak to us continually. Those stories keep resonance with us as people who live in families that have all kinds of weird dysfunction and tragedy and stuff like that. And so those stories keep being compelling every time. And I think that's part of what makes them mythic, which is, again, not to say that they're not historic. And so I, I'm enjoying the People versus O.J. Simpson, not necessarily as television, but as a kind of process of myth-making that I think is very, very old, um, and also new and newly rebooted, which seems exactly the way it should be. Anyway, People vs. O.J. Simpson is on 10 on Tuesdays at 10 o'clock on FX, and you can watch it with the cable login at FX now. Thanks, Matt. And that about wraps it up for this episode of Technicolor Jesus, but we're not quite done yet. I got to pick this week, and now it's Matt's turn. So, Matt, what are you going to make me watch next? Where are we going? So we are getting on a transcontinental flight. We are flying to New York um, because I've had enough of this Southern California. Um, <laughs> it's too warm out in Southern it's California. It's too warm. It's pleasant. There are palm trees. And I need some gray and some overcast and some concrete. Uh, and so I was racking my brain for a good and appropriate New York film for us to revisit. And... I decided instead of this bleakness of Chinatown, we needed something where the stairs go up, Adam. So it is time for us to revisit <laughs> Ghostbusters. <laughs> yes. So uh, next time on Technicolor Jesus, we will be talking Ghostbusters, theology, and the lectionary text. Thanks for listening, folks. Don't forget to find us on SoundCloud and find us on iTunes. If you like the show, tell a friend, leave us a good review, and we will see you next time. Thanks, Adam. Thanks, Matt. Rolling down. Imperial Highway, the big nasty red out of my side. Santa and the winds blowing hot from the north. We were born to ride. Roll down the window, put down the top. Crank up the beach for us, baby. Don't let the music stop. We go ride it till we just can't ride it no more. From the side.
another perfect day. 